You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. The podcast that knows you're never really alone if you have a book. Because inevitably, some dipshit will walk up to you when you're trying to read and be like, Hey, what are you reading? I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And today we're taking a gentle left turn down a mossy dirt road into the grassy fields of English Romantic era poetry. Talk about John Keats, a man who literally died from reading the comments section. And also mainly tuberculosis. The softest sad boy of the second generation romantics, which really isn't that much of a contest when your contemporaries are Percy Shelley and Sir Fucks-a-Lot himself, Lord Byron. Anyway, who is this dude? Why does he matter? RJ will go into the specifics, as he always does, but the short version is that John Keats was one of those tortured, misunderstood poets who critics, like, threw rotten fruit at and said things like, you never make it, kid. You never make it in this poetry business. Sometimes you gotta fight. You gotta claw. <laughs> you, you gotta claw to make it in the poetry world. All of his poetry critics were Al Pacino. Yes. <laughs> Hoo-ah! <laughs> Hoo-ah, your poetry's terrible. And, uh... For the, for the tragically brief time that he was alive, he was attacked by Al Pacino. And then after he died, suddenly everyone in like the 1900s were like, Oh my god, he, he was brilliant. What a genius. What a tragedy. We will teach his poems in British literature classes forever. And they did. And then the big one that even people not particularly familiar with Keats may have heard of being owed on a Grecian urn, which ends with the lines, Beauty is truth. Truth, beauty. That is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. I mean, you know, there's no... I am Ozymandias, look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. But that would require me having to take Percy Shelley seriously as a poet. And that's just a slippery slope to actually reading Lord Byron. And that's a line that, frankly, I'm just not willing to cross. Anyway, RJ, did you ever have to read any of poor little old John Keats in school? Maybe. I taught him, though. We'll get to that later. <laughs> oh, we're not going to get to that now? No, no. This is usually the section where we talk about that. No, no. <laughs> okay. So you might have had to read him. You don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, I guess I'll do my part of that, then, since you're going to deny us. Go ahead. <laughs> I did when I was 18 in my, my very first Britlet class in college. And uh, when my British literature professor got to the Romantics, she was like, you know, yeah, okay, first before everyone, there was William Blake making metal plates with demons on him and writing poetry naked in his garden while he and his wife did Shakespeare. And yes, I know that sounds rad and you'll write your thesis on it, but we have to keep moving. Then there was William Wordsworth and he wanted to bang clouds and also possibly his sister. And then Samuel Taylor Coleridge and he was addicted to opium and scared of birds and then there was John Keats and he was pretty and very sad and look at this picture of him. Is he not dreamy? He was also very short. Well, she didn't say that part. <laughs> he was like five foot even. 
We stand a short king. <laughs> You're a short little redhead with curls. This was weird because my Britley professor was not like that. Like her short. Whole, no, her her whole brand was dunking on these guys. But like Keats was this poor little wounded bird that needed protecting, according to her. Um, I think it was because everyone picked on his poetry when he was alive, and also because like he died horribly, and also because he wasn't Lord Byron. But these are just guesses. But now, offering us more than guesses about the poet who was so fragile you could kill him with mean words, I turned things over to RJ. John Keats, born Halloween, October 31st, 1795, and died the 23rd of February, 1821, which is also a holiday. Hey, Meg. Yeah. Any guesses as to what holiday falls on February 23rd? Hmm. Fatherland Day. What? Fatherland Day. It's observed in Russia, Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and Tajikistan. So it's an extremely localized to Eastern Europe holiday. So JK lived from the day of the spookies to the day of the daddies. God damn it. Hey. Don't call him JK. He's JK. Yeah, but that makes me that makes me think of the horrible transphobe lady that we don't like. Rowling? Yes. Oh. Well, this is the new JK. We're making a new JK. I, they, well, I guess he's the old JK, really. The first he's JK. He's the original JK. The original, JK. the OG JK. Yeah. Should I refer to him as OG JK every time he comes up here? That's a lot of letters. I guess we'll just call him JK. We're going to own it. Fuck the other JK. Yeah. JK was born in Moorgate, London to Thomas Keats and Francis Jennings. Even though records show that JK was born on Halloween... His family and J.K. himself celebrated his birthday on October 29th in future years. Guess the day was just too spoopy for the Keatsies. This is how you're going to be talking the whole time, huh? What do you mean? <laughs> the scaries, the daddies, the spoopies, the Keatsies. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's there. <laughs> of the Keats children that survived, an important distinction in those days. Oh, gosh. J.K. was the eldest. He had three younger siblings, one named after mom, one named after dad, and George. And John. And John. Inventive names. What are you going to do? Daddy Keats worked as a hostler, basically a carer of horses at the Swan and Hoop Inn, where the Keats gang lived for a few years. As a child, J.K. attended the local dame school. Do not let the name fool you. This was not a school, only for dames. Aha! Aha! Aha. But rather, dame schools were a form of private education run in a teacher's home. Teachers who were usually women, some of which may have even been dames. Ha ha! As J.K. got a bit older, his parents wanted to send him away to some prim and proper schools, like Eden College or the Harrow School. These are the boarding schools that the rich, famous, and generally well-to-do send their children. I have heard of Eton College from watching The Crown, and that's about it. Some notable recent-ish alum of those schools include Prince Harry, Prince William, and Winston Churchill. <laughs> that's why I've heard of it. Just to give you an idea of the kinds of peoples these schools bring in. So yeah, the son of a random inn worker, not really on that list. But you know what? Gotta shoot your shot. Hats off to them for aiming high. So instead, his parents sent him off at the ripe old age of eight to John Clark School in Enfield, which was near J.K.'s grandparents. This school happened to be smaller, more progressive, and more modern than those more prestigious schools his parents had considered. 
These differences included the fact the school had more of a familial atmosphere and the subjects taught were not only the classic stodgy stuff we associate with classic and stodgy places of learning. JK's studies included Renaissance writing and art. Other students referred to JK as always acting in extremes in which he vacillated between being a lazy procrastinator and a precocious twain who had a penchant for fistfights. This little five foot nothing kid just loved getting into fights and he had to be pretty good because he was five feet tall and he won. Um, yeah, if you're going to be a little five foot nothing obsessed with nature and romantic love and shit, yeah. You, you better be good at fistfights and shit. You know what? I love him and I support him. By the time he turned 13, however, maybe when the puberty began to kick in, he calmed down a bit and really turned on the studying powers and won the academic first prize of the summer 1809 term at his school. However, all was not well in the JK realm. On a horse ride back from visiting JK at school, Daddy Keats fell off of his horse, cracked his skull, and died. Ooh. The death was bad enough. The aftermath of the death was compounded by the fact that Daddy Keats died intestate, meaning he did not have a will in place. So it was unclear what his wishes were as it concerned his estate, which affected the family. And this brings us to this week's Financing with RJ Death Edition. Oh no! Oh, this is, this is going to be a heavy topic. It's pretty spoopy. It is extremely spoopy. We're not into Halloween yet. Do you plan to live forever? Isn't that a song in the Highlander movie? Um, yeah, and, and if, like, the queen... Yeah, spice that yeah. in here. Want to live well, bad news for you. Ain't gonna happen. You are going... You, you are You are going? <laughs> you are going to die. You are going to die, too. Everyone you know is going to die. It's just the way things are. This is kind of a sensitive topic right now. Yeah, so in preparation of death, if you want things to be carried out in a specific way, you should probably have a will. Want your hard drives buried in the bottom of the sea before your parents learn of your furry fetish? Want to be buried belly side down so the world can kiss your ass in your death? Want to have all your earthly possessions reduced to ashes and be sprinkled across Walt Disney World? Or if you're like RJ, do you want to be buried? <laughs> do you want to be buried? in an above-ground mausoleum with all of your CDs from the 90s and also a horse with a massive erect penis. No, you haven't messed up, me. Oh, sorry. No, wait, that's right. You don't want to be there. You want to be yeah, I'm cremated. cremated in an urn. You just want a mausoleum with all of your CDs from the 90s and also a horse that was picked out beforehand because it has a massive erect penis. Also, around the mausoleum are a bunch of sphinxes that have your face and also have massive erect penises. Also, every hour on the hour are flashing blue strobe lights and it plays the Venga Bus song. Yes. Well, you need this to be stipulated in a will. Exactly. So you better write a will. Otherwise, who the fuck knows what will happen when you die? Me, unfortunately. But certainly not you at home. Now, you should check your local laws that regulate wills, but in general, this is something you could do with a piece of paper, a couple witnesses, and maybe a notary, although in some jurisdictions, that's not always required. Now, remember, I'm not your attorney or doctor. Really, anyone should be giving advice that's followed. No. I am but a voice in your head, so you can't sue me. No. But you could list me in your will, which would be swell. So until you next time... You really shouldn't do that. I, I think you should. So until next time, love yourself. 
love your friends and family, love the feeling of money in your pocket, and for God's sake, love knowing your death comes with an instruction book so your family and friends don't think your final wishes or that you want to be stuffed and put on display in the Louvre in the special oddity section, unless you're into that kind of thing. No kink shaming. Then in 1810, when JK was a wee lad of 14, Mama Keats died as well. She died of tuberculosis, like everyone died from back then. Hashtag spoilers. Hashtag foreshadowing. This left Grandmama as the legal parent of the four Keats's children, but unable to care for the children herself, being elderly, and there being four of them, she assigned guardianship to Richard Abbey and John Sindel. Since school cost money and money was not much of a thing anymore, JK was taken out of school and was put to work at the grizzled old age of 14. He had to start earning his way in the world. JK found a job assisting a surgeon slash apothecary and lived in the attic above the operating theater. Nothing out of the ordinary for a 14-year-old at all. Yeah, totally normal. A friend of Keats said that this was, quote, the most placid time in Keats's life. Now, it really sucked that JK had to drop out of school and start working to make some money as a 14-year-old. In fact, the lack of money would be a recurring theme in JK's life. The thing is, it did not need to be this way. You see, 14-year-old JK was entitled to some money. His grandfather had left him $800 in trust for his 21st birthday, which is the equivalent of about $50,000 in today's money. Holy shit! Maybe not the money you can live on forever, but a nice chunk of change. Oh yeah, and his mother had left him $8,000, or about a half a million dollars in today's money, which is life-changing money. Oh my god. What the fuck? The thing is... No one ever bothered to tell JK about this money. This is kind of a big oversight. Yeah, oops. So wh wh where, where was the money? It was just fucking like sitting somewhere? Historically, it's unclear who's at fault. His guardians and caretakers may or may not have known about the money. All we know is that JK nor the caretakers ever took any of the money out and no one ever touched it on his behalf. So historically, the blame has fallen on the lawyer who oversaw the accounts for not making it clear to anyone involved that this money was there for little old JK. What a shitty lawyer. Whoopsies. That fucking sucks. So uh, going back to that earlier financing with RJ advice, know that you can make multiple copies of your wills and provide copies to people you want to get your large inheritances, like your collection of pogs, so they know to look for it when you kick the bucket. And so, you know, if your fucking shitty ass lawyer does a bad job. Yeah, just sprinkle wills wherever you go. <laughs> so people know they're on notice. In short, this oversight impacted JK's life for the worse for really... His entire life. Because it was already like half, more than halfway over at that point. Yep. After finishing his apprenticeship with the surgeon slash apothecary, JK registered as a medical student at Guy's Hospital, which is where you wind up if you eat too many foodstuffs featured on Guy's grocery games or diners, drive-ins, and dives <laughs> due to severe obesity and or heart failure. Guy's Hospital. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Fox, you listening? This is a show that can happen. Yeah. You telling me no, Meg? I'm trying really, really hard to think of a uh, alliteration in my head, and it's not coming. He worked as a dresser at the hospital. A dresser of wounds. Trust me, I was really confused when I read that he was hired as a dresser. I couldn't figure out what it was until I dug more. Was he dressing the surgeon? The patients? Both? You couldn't put two and two together on that. I forgot the word for doing that to wounds is dressing wounds. I would say bandage. So he's a bandager. You just don't read old-timey shit enough. No. <laughs> it's old. 
Everyone assumes since JK was dedicating all this time and the money he and the family had to being a successful medical student that he would become a doctor, which would ensure his financial stability later in life. But as his medical work ate more and more into his writing time, JK became more jaded about the whole medical school endeavor. Dressings, doctors, and dead guys. With Guy Fieri. <laughs> Guy's Hospital. Although it shouldn't be Triple H. Fuck you. That Hamburgers, would... hot dogs, and hospitals. That would just keep going. When JK was 19 in 1814, he wrote the earliest poem of his that we know about, an imitation of Spencer. JK was faced with a big decision, to write or to practice medicine. JK wrote to his brother George that he, quote, feared that he should never be a poet, and if he was not, he would destroy himself. JK was depressed. He needed to write, but the financial situation he and his family were in sucked. And being a surgeon was the wiser financial choice. In 1816, at the age of 20, J.K. received his apothecary's license, which made him eligible to practice as an apothecary, physician, and surgeon. But almost immediately, he informed his family that he was resolved to become a poet and not a surgeon. He still worked at Guy's Hospital here and there, but he spent more and more of his time writing. Eventually, he took a leave from work to focus solely on his writing, and he left the city for more secluded areas to focus on his poetry. Specifically around this time, he was working on sonnets. So this article, this one BBC article that came out in 2019, last July, that says that Keats might have been a grave robber. Basically, while he was a medical student, uh, that he might have been robbing graves. That stolen cadavers were a thing that medical schools kind of sometimes needed for teaching purposes back in the day. And they think he might have been robbing graves. And that you could find proof of this in his poems. And they say, quote, The lines seem to be saying more than their surface syllables admit, like a secret waiting to be dragged into the light. I can find no other proof of this anywhere else. Oh, no one else is <laughs> using the bodies anymore. Uh, the only other places I find that mention it just mention that article specifically and that it's insane. But the visual of, like, this little five-foot nubbin guy scrabbling down into an open grave is amazing. Amazing. Now, is it possible in the poems, what's under the surface is that he just practiced on cadavers that were provided by the schools? Yeah, probably. But Ke Kelly Grove Grover, I don't know, really wants it to be true. In late 1816 at 21, J.K. was introduced to the influential essayist and critic Lee Hunt, a close friend of Lord Byron and Percy Shelley, who were part of the Hunt Circle which also included Robert Browning and Alfred Lord Tennyson. A lot of lords. Well, everybody was a fucking lord back then. You couldn't swing your arms without hitting a lord. And now you just be lord. You don't even need an extra name. Boo. <laughs> We're all royals, Meg. Within months of making the connection, J.K. published his first collection with the interesting title, Poems, which was a critical failure. <laughs> Not to be deterred, however, J.K. found some new publishers, landed an advanced payment, and began working on his next collection, Poems 2. No. <laughs> poems 2! Poems again. More poems. <laughs> two poems, too furious. Or poems with a Z. <laughs> Even though Poems was a critical failure, J.K. did capture the eye of some influential people. Richard Woodhouse, an Eton-educated lawyer, said of J.K. that he was, quote, wayward, trembling, easily daunted, but that he was also a genius. 
Woodhouse became JK's number one fan, documented a lot of what JK did, and basically we know as much as we do about JK because Woodhouse wrote it all down for historians to pick up on later. Basically this guy just followed him around and wrote everything down that happened. We should all have such a fan in our life. All of his connections and friends continued to try to make Keats a thing, despite him not catching on quite yet. He was introduced to editors and literary influencers. Lee Hunt wrote highly of JK, which helped establish him in the public eye as a figure in what Hunt termed, quote, a new school of poetry. JK penned to a friend, quote, I am certain of nothing but the holiness of the heart's affections and the truth of the imagination. What imagination seizes as beauty must be truth. Bit by bit, J.K. and his writing began to catch on. But whatever financial success he had was short-lived. He owed money all over town. But not only that, he was also very generous and gave money to family and friends. So much so that he helped other people pay off their loans before he paid off his own. Not a hot R.J. tip. Poor sweet idiot. J.K. battled several colds in quick succession. Likely due to literally damp rooms he could afford to rent. He moved in with his brothers, one of which had tuberculosis at the time. In short, J.K. was depressed. In 1818 at 22, J.K. began a walking tour of Scotland with a friend. Because why not? During the journey, J.K. was afflicted with a respiratory illness and became too thin and fevered to complete the tour. He returned to London and began to nurse his brother Tom, who was still battling tuberculosis. This is when historians believe J.K. became infected with tuberculosis himself. As we have covered on Ona with class before, tuberculosis killed a lot of people back then. There would not be an effective treatment until the next century. Beyond that, medicine at the time did not assign the symptoms to one specific disease or cause, but rather tuberculosis, also known as consumption, was something that was only whispered about. Even JK wrote about the disease as something that even he, quote, refuses to give it a name. The thought at the time was tuberculosis was caused by a mixture of weakness, repressed sexual passion, or masturbation. You know, the major risk factors of respiratory illnesses. You're jerking it too much, and it makes you cough so hard you die. JK's brother died after a couple months of JK caring for him. Needing lodging, JK moved into a friend's spare house. You know, as friends have. Yeah, I just got this house, man. You want it? During his stay, JK wrote what are considered five of the six great odes in a two-month span. The odes include Ode on a Grecian Urn, Ode on Indolence, Ode on Melancholy, Ode to a Nightingale, Ode to Psyche, and To Autumn. I'm not sure why you would drop the naming convention on the last one, but there he was, trying to break the mold. Drop the ode. It's neater. Charles Armitage Brown, the friend who owned the spare house, said specifically of Ode to a Nightingale that it was his marvelous garden that led to its writing. He said, Quote, in the spring of 1819, a nightingale had built her nest near my house. Keats felt the tranquil and continual joy in her song. And one morning he took his chair. We're, we're going to look at that poem. I don't know if you want to call it a tranquil joy. <laughs> a tranquil and continual joy in her song. And one morning he took his chair from the breakfast table to the grass plot under a plum tree where he sat for two or three hours. When he came into the house, I perceived he had some scraps of paper in his hand. On inquiry, I found those scraps, four or five in number, contained his poetic feelings on the song of R. Nightingale. Yep, without him owning that garden, who knows if J.K. would have ever written such a lovely piece. Thank God for Charles Artemidge Brown. And his spare house. Around this time, J.K. published Endymion, 
which he considered, quote, a trial of my powers of imagination. Well, according to critics, he lost that trial resoundingly. We'll get to that one too. Critics shit all over Endymion. In particular, one John Gibson Lockhart described Endymion as, quote, imperpetable driveling idiocy. Lockhart went on to sarcastically advise, quote, It is better and a wiser thing to be a starved apothecary than a starved poet. So back to the shop, Mr. John. Back to the plasters, pills, and ointment boxes. Ward Byron quipped in response to the criticism that Keats was ultimately, quote, snuffed out by an article and suggested that J.K. never truly got over those slights. Oh, you didn't even have the whole bit there. That it's to strange the mind that very fiery particle should let itself be snuffed out by an article. He couldn't just say it. He had to fucking poet it. Historians agree, though, that these reviews and attacks were more motivated by politics than the actual writing. These critics slammed the entire Hunt crew, referring to them as the Cockney School. These critics found the upstart young writers as uncouth for their lack of education, non-formal writing, and, quote, low diction. For these writers had not attended Eton, Harrow, or Oxbridge, and they were not from the upper classes, and thus, their writings must suck. J.K. found it hard to publish after the rough treatment he received from critics. This did not help his money situation, which in turn did not help his depression and feelings of despair. He considered trying to get a job in journalism or perhaps taking up a post as a ship doctor. You know, just doing whatever jobs will pay the bills. While traveling through Bo Peep, which is a real place... Never knew this. Me neither, but I guess that kind of tracks. Little, little Bo Peep's got to come from somewhere. Little Bo Peep? She's just a little from Bo Peep. Yeah. During his time in Bo Peep, J.K. met Isabella Jones. Izzy has been described by biographers as beautiful, talented, and widely read. Not of the top flight of society, yet financially secure and an enigmatic figure. J.K. and Izzy apparently did not hide the fact they were into each other, but it's unclear how much of it was beating around the bush and how much of it was them actually getting down and dirty. They talked about kissing and being in each other's rooms, but there was not much mention of taking part in the devil's embrace. A.K.A. fucking. Yeah. Yeah. It is said J.K. may have written about her in the Eve of St. Agnes, the Eve of St. Mark, as well as Bright Star. I mean, how much was, at this point, was he even, like, able to fuck, you think? He probably was doing okay. Yeah. It it seems like towards the end, like, how much would he even have had, like, the strength? I mean, he still had a while to go. Like, at this point, he's still got a year in him. Another woman who caught J.K.'s fancy was Fanny Braun. Maybe it was that she shared a name with his mother and his sister. Maybe it was that she was 18. Maybe it was that, according to historians, she had a talent for dressmaking and languages, as well as a natural theatrical bent. Or maybe it was that puss. I mean, Who can tell? That's, what, that's what Fanny's slang for over there. Yep. Whatever it may be, Fanny and her sick mother moved in with J.K. so Fanny and J.K. could see each other every day. They shared books with each other. He also shared early drafts of Bright Star with her. In his letters and journals, he no longer wrote about Isabella Jones. It is said that he and Fanny came to some sort of understanding. He was still struggling to make ends meet. He also was battling depression over his lot in life and those poor reviews. He knew he could not provide for her, but did make it clear he wanted her, that he wanted to marry her, and maybe that was enough, although they never formally consummated their relationship. He wrote a letter to Fanny that read, quote, My love has made me selfish. I cannot exist without you. I am forgetful of everything but seeing you again. 
My life seems to stop there. I see no further. You have absorbed me. I have a sensation at the present moment as though I was dissolving. I should be exquisitely miserable without the hope of soon seeing you. I have been astonished that men could die, martyrs for religion. I have shuddered at it. I shudder no more. I could be martyred for my religion. Love is my religion. I could die for that. I could die for you. <laughs> None of the letters Fanny wrote to JK still exist. Oh. So we don't know like if she just kind of like responded with an emoji with a nude pic. Who can tell? Around this time, J.K. felt the tuberculosis settling in. Doctors advised that he move to a warmer climate. J.K. decided he would take his burp with him to Rome. He realized upon leaving, he may never see Fanny again, which wound up being true. Once in Rome, he could not bring himself to write Fanny any longer, instead opting to write to her mother as a way to keep in touch. Within months of being in Rome, his symptoms became progressively worse and more troubling. He suffered multiple lung hemorrhages and was coughing up blood. Oh, God. Upon coughing up bright red blood, he said to a friend, quote, I know the color of that blood. It's arterial blood. I cannot be deceived in that color. That drop of blood is my death warrant. I must die. The physician he was seeing decided the best thing he could do for JK was to conduct some bloodletting. You know, make the guy coughing up blood bleed some more. Oh, that's 1800s medicine for you. <laughs> this made JK very, very weak. J.K. wrote his last letter on November 30th, 1820, to Charles Artemidge Brown. Quote, "'Tis the most difficult thing in the world to me to write a letter. My stomach continues so bad that I feel it worse on opening any book. Yet I am much better than I was in quarantine. Then I am afraid to encounter the proying and conning of anything interesting to me in England. I have an habitual feeling of my real life having passed and that I am leading a posthumous existence. God, that's awful. I am leading a posthumous existence. The next gambit was putting J.K. on a diet of one anchovy and one piece of bread a day. Maybe starve it out of him. This feels really familiar. I feel like we've been down this road with other authors who, who died in similar ways. Oh, well, guess what? This didn't work either. Shocker. His friends did procure a bottle of opium for J.K., as that may at least alleviate his suffering a bit, but worried he might use it to commit suicide, they never gave it to him. This pissed J.K. off, and he repeatedly demanded, quote, How long is this posthumous existence of mine going to go on? Give me my goddamn opium, you fuckers. Turns out it would go on for at least three more months. Oh my god, this poor fucking man. Yeah, it was not a good way to go. Coughing up blood, sweating all the time, being given one anchovy and one piece of bread a day, not ideal. Well, this is like what happened with um, Kafka, where he, he just slowly withered away. He eventually died February 23rd, 1821, at the age of 25. Shortly before his death, J.K. made his fears of being forgotten known, as he wrote in a letter, quote, I have left no immortal work behind me, nothing to make my friends proud of my memory. But I have loved the principle of beauty in all things. And if I had had time, I would have made myself remembered. Well, good news, JK. You are remembered. So see, it's kind of a happy ending after all. He's 25. He's now one of the most studied and respected British poets. Even his contemporaries, Shelley and Hunt, continue to stand for him after his death. Specifically, Shelley said that he believed it was the bad reviews and the weight of them on JK's head that wound up killing JK. He wrote of JK's death, the loveliest and the last, the bloom, whose petals nipped before they blew, died on the promise of the fruit. I mean, 
The doctor who autopsied Keats was quoted as saying it was the worst case of tuberculosis he had ever seen. And he couldn't believe that he had lived as long as he did, which makes slightly more sense than his poems got criticized so hard that he died. But, you know, that was sweet as Shelley. He never gave up. <laughs> Keep on fighting. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, it's Megan. Just popping in to let you know that this episode, as always, is brought to you in part by our wonderful, beautiful, amazing, ode-worthy patrons. Including our newest patron, Dilsky the Bean Boy. <laughs> Thank you, Dilsky. Would that I had the words to craft an ode to your amazingness. But instead, we have... Awesome bonus content, stickers, and bookmarks, and t-shirts, and awesome swag, as well as the ability to do things like vote on episodes that we do next, including one of the awesome Halloween episodes that will be coming up in the next month. So that's a cool thing that y you get to do. And you can do that by pledging at patreon.com slash onolitclass. A special pod pal announcement for this episode? It's me. Yeah, that's right. In case you just couldn't get enough of this voice, now you can hear even more of it on Fun Fiction, a recently revamped show by psychotic podcast beast Scotty Moore. You may recall we had, as a guest on our show, for our episode on The Glass Menagerie, um, which is one of my more favorite recent episodes. It's, it's a good one if you haven't heard it. You can go back and listen. So, and he came and was like, hey, I'm revamping an old podcast that I used to do. Do you want to come and scream on it with me? And I was like, hell yeah, that sounds awesome. So now we do a show called Fun Fiction, the first new episode of which should be dropping the same day as this one. And you may be asking, but Megan, what is Fun Fiction? To which I say, here. This. Hey, Megan. Hey, Scotty. I'm gonna name some things, and you tell me what you think. Okay. Batman. Trash. Harry Potter. Garbage. Star Wars. Not horny enough. And what do they all have in common? We, we can, can make, make them, them better. better. I'm Megan Danger from Oh No Lit Class, the internet's best podcast for literature-based ding-dong humors. And I'm Scotty Moore, the current and only author of the Harry Potter series. And we host the new and improved Fun Fiction Podcast. It's a show where we take the most beloved franchises out there and make them better. It's fiction for fans, by fans, with all of the dirty details that Hollywood was afraid to put in. So Finn and Poe can finally kiss? Everyone can finally kiss Megan. We have the power that no one was able to give us before. Vegeta and Goku, Steve and Bucky, Captain Marvel and that other lady. I do so love Captain Marvel and that other lady. But not the Joker. No kisses for the Joker. He knows what he did. He can get a big old shot to the ding-dong with a bat. That's all he deserves. And all you deserve is to listen to Fun Fiction. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podchaser, Captivate, YouTube. Or wherever you get your podcasts. They're, they're, they're in the podcast places. The Podcast Zone. Get in it. 
today. <laughs> Do it, coward! Do it! So we'll just be looking at a few of Keats' most well-known poems, the ones that I remember him like the most, and then uh, end on that one poem that his friend Lee Hunt claimed the criticism of killed him. You know, and things on a cheerful note. Also, I'll be doing adaptations and pop cultural references kind of different individually for each poem, because yes, they are that influential. Um, and then for Keats himself at the end. So originally, I was going to start with the sonnet on first looking into Chapman's Homer, which is a poem that's incredibly widely referenced, like literally from Edgar Allan Poe to 30 Rock. But it's also about getting super excited about reading Homer, like a fucking nerd. And anyway, it's famous for getting like major historical details in it wrong. And then I remembered he wrote La Belle Dame Sans Merci, which is a ballad about a knight getting his dick cursed by an evil fairy. So, uh, duh. Now, how is it cursed exactly? Won't get up, just ugly, gets real small, can't shoot no more. He gets, like, all of him cursed, but it's, like, via the dick. Ah. So, um, written in 1819, La Belle Dame Sans Merci, a.k.a. The Beautiful Lady Without Mercy, is a title taken from a much, much, much longer French poem from the 15th century about courtly love in which a knight argues with some lady. Keats saw that title and was like, hmm... But what if, instead, it was 88 stanzas shorter, and somehow both hornier and sadder? And uh, he did rewrite it slightly in 1820, but I'm going to read the original. This is the one that everyone pretty much goes with, so here is La Belle Dame Sans Merci. Oh, what can ail thee, knight at arms, alone and palely loitering? The sedge has withered from the lake, and no birds sing. Oh, what can ail thee, knight at arms, so haggard and so woebegone? The squirrel's granary is full, and the harvest's done. I see a lily on thy brow, with anguish moist and fever dew, and on thy cheeks a fading rose fast withereth too. I met a lady in the meads, full beautiful, a fairy's child. Her hair was long, her foot was light, and her eyes were wild. I made a garland for her head, and bracelets too, and fragrant zone. She looked at me as she did love, and made sweet moan. I set her on my pacing steed, and nothing else saw all day long, and sidelong would she bend and sing a fairy's song. She found me roots of relish sweet, and honey wild, and manna dew, and sure in language strange she said, I love thee true. She took me to her elfin grot, and there she wept and sighed full sore, and there I shut her wild, wild eyes with kisses for. And there she lulled me asleep, and there I dreamed, ah, woe betide, the latest dream I ever dreamt, and on the cold hillside. I saw pale kings and princes too, pale warriors, death pale were they all. They cried, la belle dame sans merci, thee hath in thrall. I saw their starved lips in the gloam, with horrid warning gaped wide, and I awoke and found me here, on the cold hill's side. And this is why I sojourn here, alone and palely loitering, though the sedge is withered from the lake, and no birds sing. So the last few times we've been to poetry land, it's been fairly modern shit. T.S. Eliot and his frolicking cats and, like, depressed middle-aged men. Robert Frost looking at nature and going, yep. Trees do make me feel both wistful and isolated from society. 
And E.E. E. Cummings, like, brandishing a typewriter, like a fucking weapon, going like, I dare you to interpret this poem, asshole. And we did. <laughs> we did. But now nah, we're, we're back to that old school shit. We got a knight getting seduced by a fairy lady, banging in a meadow, getting taken to her fuck nest, a.k.a. her elfin grot, which is just short for grotto, which is like a, a cave. And then, and then she gives him magic snacks, I guess, honey, mana, and, uh, relish root i'm not 100 percent sure what a relish root is i'm guessing the root of relish <laughs> i guess uh but we know from our greek myths and our folk tales and such that uh when you're in a weird magic world what don't you do rj eat the snacks D- exactly you don't eat the snacks and then sure enough when he sleeps then then in the night he's greeted with visions of ghosts being like bro that bell dam half bespelled your dick just like Ghostbusters. Just like Ghostbusters, exactly. <laughs> Everyone remembers that part in Ghostbusters. I do. When, when I saw it as a child, I'm like, what's happening to his pants? Why is that happening to his pants? You Who's know, doing that to his pants? You know that's not like happening, right? What? He's having a sex dream. Because Ray's horny for ghosts. It the, happens the character on of Ray stands does not like fuck ghost. He has a horny sex dream about ghosts. Oh yeah, but it shows up all the same. I guess. Someone opens his pants. <laughs> dream or not. <laughs> and you don't see him. Because it's a ghost. But he wakes up and he's no longer in the awesome fairy sex cave, but the cold, sad, limbo-esque hillside where we started the poem and where he's presumably trapped forever. Sure, we got weird words like sedge, which just means grass, and gloom, which is just like keats shortening gloaming which just means twilight but like you know there's a pretty clear narrative thread here and it's depressing but you know in kind of a hot way you could even say that it's an empowering female narrative the bell dam sans mercy is a girl boss why though because what she do she poison them she lures men yeah to her to her fairy fuck Nest has sex with them and then curses them to the hills. <laughs> um, question. <laughs> the, the women who seduce men drug them and then I like, take their Rolexes. Are they girl bosses? I'm being sarcastic. Uh, was, uh, Hustlers, Hustlers. So Is that like an a- empowering movie starring J-Lo? Are they girl bosses? If you can't tell by the fact that I literally can't say it without breaking down laughing. I'm Are not, they girl bosses? I'm not being fucking serious. I really just wanted to say this sentence. Oh, Belle Dip Sands Mercy is a girl boss. Because, <laughs> you know, she's luring dudes into her lair for hot love and then leaving them on her cursed hillside. It is. It's like hustlers. <laughs> like j-lo <laughs> god bless you j-lo hey she she did all her own poll work in that movie yeah it's fucking impressive jenny from a block you can't do that shit yeah i can no you can't well, you, yeah yeah get me a poll I, I would buy you a poll okay see if you could do that shit i can all right put your money where your fucking poll is um anyway The poem is one of many where Keats intertwines love and death and comments on the transitory nature of romantic love. But it's not nearly as fun to say lust is fleeting and dies quickly as it is to say, that's the evil fairy that cursed my penis. There's a ton of faux Renaissance style paintings of the Belle Dame of the Night. Uh, There's this Canadian musician, Lorena McKinnett. 
She was big in the 90s for this Celtic-style one-hit wonder. She's, like, made her career off taking old-ass romantic poems and turning them into songs, and I know this because I had to listen to, like, ten of them in class. I paid fucking tuition money to do that. Anyway, this was one of them. This poem is referenced in a billion books, including being mentioned offhand by Sherlock Holmes, as well as by a character in an Agatha Christie novel. It's referenced in the title The Pale King, the final novel of David Foster Wallace, and in Neil Gaiman's novel Coraline, as the true name of the book's villain, The Other Mother, is revealed to Coraline by the ghosts of a bunch of little kids to be the Beldam. Which, I guess, fits, because Coraline is also lured into a magic world and given treats and stuff, but is also super weird with, you know, the context given the sexual overtones of the poem, but whatever. Lastly, there's a short film from 2005, simply titled La Belle Dame Sans Merci, directed by Hidetoshi um, Oneda. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's only 15 minutes long. You can watch it for free on YouTube. Uh, They do kind of a horror take on it. It's a little cheesy, but a fun way to visually parse the poem. Even if at the end, the interpretation of it is wrong. Like, it's objectively incorrect and implies that the knight got cursed because he didn't love the fairy lady hard enough, but, you know, either way. Moving on! Ode on a Grecian Urn, also written in 1819. Ode on a Grecian Urn was actually first published anonymously, possibly due to his delicate sensibilities and and how hard uh, poems crashed. (laughs) So this is not a sexy poem. It is a thinking poem. Or can you write a sexy poem about an urn? I don't know. It's an urn. I mean, maybe if people are like fucking on the urn. You put dead people on urns. Yeah, but you could paint people fucking on the urn. They got ashes of dead people inside? Weirder shit's happened. You're asking me questions here. I'm trying to give you answers. Anyway. In the the poem, Guy talks to a a Grecian urn. He eventually makes profound determinations about art and stuff. I'm going to read you the poem now. This is one of the most famous and argued about poems. And we will get to why after I have read it. So this is Ode on a Grecian Urn. Thou still unravished bride of quietness, thou foster child of silence and slow time, sylvan historian who canst thus express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme. What leaf-ringed legend haunts about thy shape, of deities or mortals or of both, in tempest or the dales of Arcady? What men or gods are these? What maidens loth? What mad pursuit? What struggle to escape? What pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy? Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, yet soft pipes play on. Not to the sensual ear, but, more endeared, pipes to the spirit, ditties of no tone. Fair youth beneath the trees, thou canst not leave thy song, nor ever can those trees be bare. Bold lover, never, never canst thou kiss, though winning near the goal, yet do not grieve. She cannot fade, though thou hast not thy bliss, for ever wilt thou love, and she be fair. Ah, happy, happy boughs! Thou cannot shed your leaves, nor ever bid the spring adieu, and happy melodist, unwearied, forever piping songs, forever new. More happy love, more happy, happy love, forever warm and still be too enjoyed, forever panting and forever young, all breathing human passion far above, that leaves a heart high sorrowful and cloyed, a burning forehead and a parching tongue. Who are these coming to the sacrifice? To what green altar, O mysterious priest, leadest thou that heifer lowing at the skies, and all her silken flanks with garlands dressed, 
What little town by river or seashore or mountain built with peaceful citadel is emptied of this folk, this pious morn? And what little town thy streets forevermore will silent be and not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can ne'er return? O attic shape, fair attitude, with bread of marble men and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed, thou silent form dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity, cold pastoral. When old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man to whom thou sayest, Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. I am the truth. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm beautiful. You're so pretty. John Mayer said so. What? Not John Mayer. Who who, who, who sung that I am beautiful? Huh? That song, You Are Beautiful. Are you talking about Christina Aguilera? No. It's a male that sings that song. Oh, okay, because I was like, the one I think came up when you said that is, You are beautiful in every single way. Words can't bring you down. Which, yeah, that's definitely what John Keats was thinking about. Oh, excuse me, James Blunt. Oh. Yeah, I'm beautiful. He told me so. So I am the truth. (laughs) I can't remember how that song goes. You're beautiful. It's true. Oh, yeah. You're beautiful. Yeah, he was singing to me. You're beautiful. It's true. I saw your face. See, he knows beauty is true. A Grecian vase. Truth is beauty. <laughs> Both are RJ. Not even appreciating a very good rhyme. Um, So I know that was kind of a lot and might feel like a bit of a trap after the last poem. Like, I am the evil fairy and I lured you into this less fun poem after all the jokes about magicking people's dicks. But basically, the speaker of the poem checks out this urn, examining the stories that it tells on the sides, and then expressing jealousy that the trees and, like, the little people on it, uh, there are lovers on it. They're, they're not fucking, but one is playing pipes and one's, like, chasing the other on it. And they never have to change or grow old or die. Which, given what we know of Keats, it's a big mood. <laughs> But there's also, like, kind of weird, cool paradoxes at work here when you think about it. Like, the art on the urn is immortal, but the urn itself is meant to carry, as you said, the ashes of the dead. So that's kind of, like, an interesting little thought to have in your pocket when you're reading it. The urn is a bride of quietness, but he's supposed to be listening to it because it can do art better than him. But then also, anyway, he decides that it's cold and unfeeling because it can't change. That's why he calls it a cold pastoral. And then he says, you know, when all of us have died and withered away, the urn will still be sitting there in the midst of other woe, which is pretty fucking forbidding, you know, if you ask me. Forboding? Forbidding, foreboding. Yeah, foreboding. <laughs> Different words. So it's waiting for us to jump in that urn with everyone else who's already in there. Well, not to do that. It's waiting to give us advice. Like, so he, he calls the urn a friend to man after that, but I feel like you kind of read that sarcastically, potentially. So the urn's waiting to give us advice, because then the urn will say, quote, beauty is truth, truth beauty, that's all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. And you can ask me how to interpret that, and, uh... <laughs> I mean, you could take it at the surface level, that Keats was a wide-eyed romantic idealist, and all things beautiful are true. 
I don't know how that clocks with the rest of the poem, though. Like, uh, the urn is just like, I am beautiful, and therefore I am truth, and I am here to teach you that for all times, because I will never wither away to dust, unlike you puny humans. Lies RJ keeps saying, because uh, we all will die. Much like art in general, which does not die. Much like this poem, I guess. If we want to be a bit more cynical, because the speaker seems to have more mixed feelings towards the urn by the end of the poem, we could read the urn as being idealistic, since we're getting this message specifically from the urn and not the poem speaker. Like the thing that was just getting criticized for being forever frozen in time and, and not being able to change and adapt is telling us that beauty and truth are interchangeable and all we need to know, so like, maybe take that with a grain of salt. I very specifically remember my professor telling us that we could read it both ways, and at the time, you know, I was just like, yeah, okay, I see that, that makes sense, but I've never seen that read of it since anywhere else, and when I was looking into it for this, like, 12 years later, I don't see that read of it anywhere else, so it turns out maybe my professor was actually just, like, a huge radical. I don't know, doc Dr. Hillary Edwards... Romantics, uh, poetry professor renegade. <laughs> you got any thoughts? On Grecian Urn? Yeah. So here's where an O2 Grecian Urn entered my life. Well, I was teaching a British literature class, and we were using the Nordian anthology of British literature. We read some short stories, we read some poetry. And for a term paper, I told students they could write about any two pieces that were in the entire Norton anthology, except the ones that were on our syllabus, I wanted them to explore because they would report it to the rest of class. Pick any writing, pick any two pieces, go for it. Now, there was one student in particular who I guess flipped through the Norton anthology and came across the glossy pages in the middle that included pictures of things that are described in the book. And what their entire paper was about was about this urn looking thing and just describe the urn in three pages so on what it looked like what was on it they took it upon themselves just to describe a grecian urn and what it looked like on the page they rewrote wrote on a grecian urn without realizing they were doing it um that was a bad move for them <laughs> that's all i'll say they tried but a genius metatextual move this was also a student who in the class I had with them before, I think immediately before this course, had plagiarized by literally just copying things like completely off a different website and just putting their name on top and not changing anything. In particular, I failed her paper because she plagiarized and she wanted to appeal to the dean and I told her, not sure that's a good idea, but you know, it's, you're right, we'll do that. <laughs> And so we informed the dean, we go for the appeal, it's me, her, and then two of the deans to hear this appeal. You know, they hear her part where she basically argues, yeah, I plagiarized, but I should get some credit. Shouldn't it be a zero? Maybe, you know, like a D. Maybe a C. Yeah, because I went out, I found this stuff. <laughs> and the dean's like, oh, let's see, let's see your paper, let's see your paper. And they look through it and they just start cracking up. The dean just gets red-faced. And I knew this would happen because when he put it back down, what he pointed to was the fact she's what the ads from the website in her paper. Click here to learn more. <laughs> it's and, a brilliant postmodern commentary. And he was like, get out of here. <laughs> so that's how an ode to a Grecian urn entered my life. Just the urn. Not so much the ode. She's a terrible English student. She's a brilliant art student.
by the time I left that institution, she was no longer a student, so go figure. <laughs> she tried, though, to the bitter end. So people hated this poem when it came out. Uh, this was one of the ones that everybody thought was trash. One reviewer uh, said, quote, So that is all that Mr. Keats knows or cares to know, but till he knows much more than this, he will never write verses fit to live. <laughs> but now people consider it literally one of the greatest odes in the English language. Except... Except... Except for those last two lines. So because this is a thinking poem without a fun, sexy narrative... Instead of there being a whole bunch of different adaptations or people singing songs about it or whatever, there's a fuckload of critics arguing about those last two fucking lines for the past, like, 200 years. This reached its peak with our buddies in The New Critics, who we mentioned in our episode on T.S. Eliot and our literary theory episode, and their whole bag is, like, super close reading, to the point where it becomes a problem. And I'm just going to read like a truncated version on, on Wikipedia of T.S. Eliot and the New Critics slowly losing their shit over these two lines over a period of like 30 years because it's just fucking great. The debate is sparked with poet laureate Robert Bridges at the beginning of the 20th century when he argued, quote, The thought as announced in the first stanza is the supremacy of ideal art over nature because of its unchanging expression of perfect. And this is true and beautiful, but the implication in the poem is unprogressive, monotonous, and scattered. The last stanza enters stumbling upon a pun, but its concluding lines are very fine and make a sort of recovery with their forcible directness. So he thought that the final lines uh, fixed an otherwise bad poem. And so this other guy... Arthur Quiller Couch was like, no, 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 that's, that's not true. You're wrong. These lines are, quote, a vague observation to anyone whom life has taught to face facts and define his terms. They're actually an uneducated conclusion, but a pardonable in one so young and ardent. And then, uh, get someone else who's mad about it. Then we get T.S. Eliot, who gets real mad about it in 1929, he says, quote, this line strikes me as a serious blemish on a beautiful poem. And the reason must be either that I fail to understand it or that it is a statement which is untrue. And I suppose that Keats meant something by it. However remote his truth and his beauty may have been from these words in ordinary use. But I am unsure that he would have repudiated any explanation of the line which called it a pseudo-statement. This statement of Keats seems to me meaningless. In 1930, John Middleton Murray gave a history of all these different responses, quote, to show the astonishing variety of opinion which exists at this day concerning the culmination of a poem whose beauty has been acknowledged for many years. My own opinion concerning the value of these two lines in the context of the poem itself is not very different from Mr. Eliot. So he's saying, I still think it sucks, but wow, people sure do have a lot of opinions on it. And then this other guy pops up in 1947 named Clanth Brooks to defend it. He's like, nah, you are all wrong. He says, quote, we shall not feel that the generalization unqualified to be taken literally is meant to march out of its context to, to compete with the scientific and philosophical generalizations which dominate our world. Beauty is truth. Truth, beauty has precisely the same status and the same justification as Shakespeare's ripeness is all. 
It is a speech in character and supported by a dramatic context. And he just kind of sort of goes on. A man before his time. <laughs> and it just, it just keeps going. And then finally, we have this guy, Earl Wasserman, in 1953. And he says, quote, The more we tug at the final lines of the ode, the more the noose of their meaning strangles our comprehension of the poem. The aphorism is all the more beguiling because it appears near the end of the poem, for its apparently climactic position has generally led to the assumption that it is the abstract summation of the poem. But the ode is not an abstract statement or an excursion into philosophy. It is a poem about things. Stuff. Stuff. There you, go. there you got it, folks. It's, it's a poem about things. Oh, to be white men writing literary criticism in the mid-1900s. <laughs> Gotta do something. Might as well as criticize. It's like, guys, it's a poem about things. Chill the fuck out. <laughs> okay, next up is another banger from 1819, folks. That's Ode to a Nightingale, or This bird isn't going to die, but I sure am. Bird's gonna die, too. Well, not, not this specific bird. I guess. Um, the poem Bird is Immortal. It's an incredibly beautiful poem, as well as one of the most frequently anthologized poems in the entire fucking English language. So, you know, damn. For once, instead of being inspired by nerdy shit, Keats just saw a nightingale, as, as you uh, related, out in the yard and was just like, hmm, yes, it's pretty. I am bound for death. My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock I had drunk or emptied some dull opiate to the drains one minute past and leafwards had sunk. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness that thou light-winged dryad of the trees in some melodious plot of beech and green and shadows numberless singest of summer in full-throated ease. Oh, for a draught of vintage that have been cooled a long age in deep-delved earth, tasting of flora in the country green, dance and provincial song and sunburnt mirth. Oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrine, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple-stained mouth, that I might drink and leave the world unseen and with thee fade away into the forest dim. Fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget What thou among the leaves hast never known, The weariness, the fever, and the fret, Here where men sit and hear each other groan, Where palsy shakes a few sad last gray hairs, Where youth grows pale and spectre thin and dies, Where but to think is to be full of sorrow And leaden-eyed despairs, Where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes, or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, though the dull brain perplexes and retards. Already with thee tender is the night, and haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays, but here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown, through verdurous glooms and winding mossy ways. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but in balm darkness guess each sweet, wherewith the seasonable month endows. 
the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild, white hawthorn and the pastoral eglantine, fast-fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid-May's eldest child, the coming muskrows full of dewy wine, and murmurous haunt of flies on summer eves. Darkling I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many a mused rhyme, and take into the air my quiet breath. Now more than ever it seems rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Perhaps the self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth when sick for home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn. The same that oft times hath charmed magic casements opening on the foam of perilous seas and fairy lands forlorn. Forlorn, the very word is like a bell, to toll me back from thee to my soul self. Adieu, the fancy cannot cheat so well, as she is famed to do, deceiving elf. Adieu, adieu, thy plaintive anthem fades. Pass near meadows over the still stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? Both. Well, yeah, kinda. For chance to dream? For chance to wake? Shakespeare. Th thanks. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So there's there's a lot there. I get real, like, emotional reading that one because it's like, gosh, I sure have thought about death a lot. Like, the, the, Who big, hasn't? the biggest thing uh, about this poem is that, you know, the hallmark of the romantics was their whole, you know, communing with nature shit, that they would write poems where they would become awed or overwhelmed by the sheer raw sort of joy or beauty of the natural world and how they were connected to it. And Keats tries to place himself in nature and listen to birdsong and comes up with death, forlorn melancholy, and the transient nature of human existence. No wonder my professor wanted to just, like, give him a hug. Guy sits out on a hillside, watches the birds, and is like, I am entering into a beautiful dreamlike state that is like death, but isn't. This bird will emerge from it, but I won't, because I am doomed to die, because I'm John Keats and my insides are just straight garbage. A few bands have taken lines from it and, like, incorporated it as, like, lyrics in their songs and stuff. Nothing really kind of worth mentioning. Although if you think the line, the tender is the night, sounded familiar, that's because F. Scott Fitzgerald took it as the title of his 1934 novel. Uh, finally, I'm just going to touch on Endymion. Endymion? Endymion? Your guess is as good as mine. Endymion, I think. <laughs> Which is technically classified as a poem but is also divided into four books, which are each a thousand lines long. So fuck that. So uh, we mentioned that uh, Lee Hunt claimed that Quarterly Review was so mean about Endymion that it made Keats die. And then as you stated, that really the review was just sort of generally mean to all of them. Uh, I read the same one as you, and before it said the thing about him going back and being an apothecary, it spends way more of the review being mean to Hunt specifically. So when he's like, oh yeah, it was Endymion criticism that killed him. 
I think Hunt had a, a wider agenda, especially when you consider the fact that Endymion came out in 1818, which is earlier than all of the poems that I just read. So it, it took its sweet time killing him if that's what did it. It weighs <laughs> on you, you know, like a death of a thousand cuts. I guess. And in fact, even Keats said, like, he didn't regret writing it, but like, he, he even was said like a little later, like, you know... Maybe I did go a little overboard here. It was a bit much. It's based on a Greek myth about a shepherd named Endymion who was in love with like the goddess of the moon, I think. Again, four books, thousand lines per book, not happening. I'll read the excerpt that gets passed around, which is like the first 24 lines of the first book. And that is, A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. It will never pass into nothingness, but still will keep... A bower quiet for us, and a sleep, full of sweet dreams and a health and quiet breathing. Therefore on every morrow are we wreathing, a flowery band to bind us to the earth, spite of despondence of the inhuman dearth, of noble natures of the gloomy days, of all the unhealthy and o'er-darkened ways, made for our searching, yes, in spite of all, some shape of beauty moves away the pall from our dark spirits, such the sun, the moon, Trees old and young sprouting a shady boon for simple sheep, and such are daffodils, with the green world they live in, and clear rills, that for themselves a cooling covert make, gainst the hot season the mid-forest break, rich with a sprinkling of fair musk-rose blooms, and such too is the grandeur of the dooms we have imagined for the mighty dead, all lovely tales that we have heard or read, an endless fountain of immortal drink pouring unto us from the heaven's brink. Yeah, it would be a lot considering how long it is. Also, yeah, in comparison to everything else we read, it's juvenile. Like him. It's, it's a little childish. You could see how he would evolve. In the next two years or so. No, but style-wise, yeah. Compare that to what I just read in Ode to a Nightingale. I do want to point out that this might be one of the earlier works that we have of his, but he did purposely burn, like, all his early works. Like, his early, early works. Uh, yeah, well... See, I would say that's him being the, the, the little sensitive... Oh, yeah, he thought they all sucked. he is, but we have a track record here at Ono Liklas... Of writers doing that, of being like, burn it all! But anyway, perhaps time has exonerated Endymion anyway, with specifically that, that opening line, a thing of beauty is a joy forever in particular, being quoted in movies like Mary Poppins, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and White Men Can't Jump. <laughs> a thing of beauty is a joy forever. My man John Keith said that. John Keith, that's my man. The thing is, Woody Harrelson... Should not represent the entirety of any population, white people, men, or any other subset of the human populace. Good movie, though. So for just general adaptations of our boy Keats, there's a Hugo Award-winning sci-fi book series from 1989 called Hyperion by Dan Simmons, which features a character who is a clone of John Keats. Uh, well, there is a different 1989 award-winning fantasy novel called The Stress of Her Regard by Tim Powers, which has not only Keats, but also Shelley and Byron as vampires who secretly manipulate history. 1989 was on some shit. Most recently, in 2009, there was the biopic Bright Star, starring Ben Wishaw as Keats and Abby Cornish as Fanny Braun. The title is a reference to the sonnet, 
Bright Star, Would I Were As Steadfast As Thou Art. I haven't seen it. You see it? Yeah. Is it good? No. Although, I think this was before Ben Winshaw was him. Ben Wishaw. Wishaw, whatever it is. Was him? Yeah, it was like who he is now. It was 2009. It wasn't that long ago. It's 11 years ago. Oh, God. Time isn't real. So I don't think I knew who he was. Right. So maybe I like it more now. I did not like it at the time. I just wanted him to die. And then he died. Wow. Like, get on with it. Get on with it. Because he's sick and he's sick. And I go, oh my God. Blah, 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 blah. I know where this is going. Blah, blah, blah. It was well received uh, critically. <laughs> nope. It's got an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. Good for them. Okay. I was going to say, like, knowing... Ben Wishaw, being a fan of him, it seems like that would feel like good casting. Yeah, so like I said, maybe now I'd enjoy it more. <laughs> I did not know who he was in 2009. <laughs> yeah, we didn't know each other yet. <laughs> no. Watch it with my previous squeeze as my current squeeze. You're a swell kid. If you ever call me a squeeze again, I'm a squeeze you. Um, yay. Yeah, yeah, yay. Yeah. Either way. The soundtrack's on Spotify, and uh, you can listen to Ben Wishaw reciting Ode to a Nightingale and La Belle Dame Sans Merci, and I recommend the experience. That's what I did today. I enjoyed it, even though sometimes there's also a woman wailing in the background. That part's weird. Was that in the movie? I don't remember. (laughs) It's been 11 years. (laughs) Well, you can listen to it on Spotify. It's, it's probably more pleasant to listen to Ben Wishaw recite La Belle Dame Sans Merci than, than me. He's got that on me. But uh, yeah, that's that's that. So that leads us to the part of the show that we always get to, and that is, hey, RJ. What's up? John Keats. That is a man. That is a name. Yeah. We we stand a short king. Or do we? Do, <laughs> do, do we stand? Yes or no? It is a beautiful urn. <laughs> I... Can't say otherwise. That's poetry for you, baby. <laughs> Look, had a short life, said some things when he was around, and then... <laughs> short life for a short man. <laughs> and like everything else, he ended. Now, life could have been easier if he had those buku bucks that were given to him. Might have lived longer. But would he have been as successful? Who knows? No, no, that's not what I'm asking. Okay, hey, RJ. What's up? John Keats. Yeah? That poetry, is it good? Well, yeah, it came from a place of pain. That doesn't ma- automatically make It makes something... it better taste good. No, that's not... That's what I'm told. To be a good artist, you have to suffer. That's bullshit. I guess it would have been swell if he lived longer and didn't die of the Burke. Poetry's good. Captured life and beauty and truth. And it's all the same. Hey, Megan. See, I mean, I was hoping for something a little more from someone who claims that there's no such thing as objective truth, what the lines beauty is truth and truth beauty would mean to you, but I should have known better when there's football on TV. Now that's the truth. Well, to Keats, it seems like he does believe in an absolute truth and it's nature. How can he disagree with that? It's not opinion. It's just nature, man. It is what it is. A nightingale's a nightingale, Meg. Beauty is beauty. You can't put your finger on it, but you know it when you see it, like pornography. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. Jonathan Keatson. Johnny Keatsy. Bueno or mal? What prompted that? No, he went to Italy. That's not Italian. It's Latin. No, it's not. Yeah, it's Spanish. That's not Latin. Oh, that's a derivative of Latin. So Much it's not, like yeah, Italian. Yeah, well, words have meaning. I don't know Italian. 
Well, then don't make shit up. Probably pretty close. It's all Latin in the end, baby. What the fuck does that mean? It means you're my squeeze. <laughs> it's all Latin in the end, baby. I mean, good. Yeah. I, I guess it's easy to fall into the cliche of liking the, the, the tragic poet of dying young and unpopular with these pretty poems that often themselves are teetering on the brink between life and death and, and to, to paint him in that sort of cliche way when it, it seems like he was kind of more of a, a, a scrappier guy, as you described, and that he, he didn't get sort of more frail and, and sickly in kind of how he's painted through his life until the very end of his life, even if he did have to deal with, like, a lot of shit. But, yeah, his poems are good. Sucks that, uh, he didn't really get recognized for it. But he does now. Yeah, I think they're beautiful. I think they have the the merit to be read. I think he was grappling with interesting ideas. And I think even if he was scrappy, he was also small and soft. And I think unlike Lord Byron, he wasn't running around just putting his dick and fucking everything that moved and pretending that that made him a poet doesn't it though and whatever the fuck percy was inflicting on mary shelley while she was trying to invent a genre of fiction fucking on graves yep grave fucking meanwhile keats is like i'm just trying to write my poetry over here and look at birds god so yes good and now about do it for this episode of oh no lit class if you like our show, if you like the things that we do, if you want to help support the creation of RJ's horrendous mausoleum of CDs and a horse <laughs> with a massive erect penis, <laughs> subscribe, leave us a rating and a review, spread the word, tell your family, tell your friends. But just tell them about the show. Don't tell them about the mausoleum with the full of CDs and the horse with the penis. You can, in, in the Sphinxes, you can leave that part out. Just tell them about the cool literature show that talks about, like, poetry and stuff and not all the weird shit. And um, tell them that they can find that show on Twitter at Pod or... Uh, join the Facebook group or on Tumblr. Links to all of that at onolitclass.com. Then you can listen on, on everything, all the things. Everywhere, all the time. It, ne- every- it never stops. We're actually always playing somewhere, all the time, forever. And if that sounds terrifying to you, it's probably because our next episode is going to be on October 1st. Yep. That's right. It's Halloween month. The best, spookiest, most wonderful time of the year for literature. But until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. Oh, was that a nightingale? <laughs>